Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dick Miller. You're listening to Junk Food Cinema. Who were these guys? Once upon a junk food cinema, brought to you by filmschoolrejects.com. Dot com. Dot com. Dot everyone in the old west is sweaty. This is the weekly cult and exploitation film cast. So good, it just has to be fattening. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, and I'm joined, as per usual, by my friend and co-host. He's a novelist, he's a screenwriter, lieutenant of Megaforce, someone who definitely trusts his own pants, Mr. C. Robert Cargill. Hi. How's it going? I'm excited. I, I think you should be. And by the way, happy happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. This is I feel like we have prepared a feast today. We really have. I mean, this is the thing about this movie is it is incredibly influential. Uh it is probably among the five best movies we will ever talk about on Junk Food Cinema. When you talk about films that are just great films. Uh, I would put this as one of the top five westerns of all time and will fight Agreed. any man who disagrees with me. Um, uh, or I might just slap you around a bit. One of the two, uh, <laughs> but it is as a film, it is incredible. And it is a film that not only has been influential on just cinematography and, and music and storytelling. There are two great movies, people, movies that con- we consider great. One of which we're talking about next week that were directly influenced by this movie and are attempts to remake that movie in their own ways. And in attempting to remake their own version of that movie instead made a very different classic. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so I find that absolutely fascinating from a cinematography standpoint, from a filmmaking standpoint, from a storytelling and screenwriting standpoint, this is one of the most fascinating movies ever fucking made. Um, and we're going to break it down uh, uh, all like eight lines of dialogue. Um, <laughs> this is a two hour and 46 minute movie with almost no dialogue. And you really don't give a shit. We are going to say more words in this podcast than they speak in this two and a half hour movie. We pretty much already have. Truth. And it's done. I mean, it's yeah. And and there, that's the entire script for uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, but dear God, it is... The perfect example of iconic Western filmmaking. It is all the great Western stories told together at one time, uh, all through separate characters dealing with one thing. And at the same time, it's Chinatown before Chinatown. 
All very true. And, and and speaking of great stories, if you would like to hear more of our great stories, you can find our entire back catalog on iTunes, as well as on uh, Blog Talk Radio and Spotify, by the way. I don't know if you guys are aware, but we are, in fact, on Spotify, where I'm pretty sure you can also listen to a fuck ton of Ennio Morricone music. So I would recommend... As well you should. I, I would recommend listening to him and then listening to us and make like a parfait of this podcast and his amazing scores. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. Like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. And if you really like the show... I mean, you really like the show. If you like it more than Henry Fonda liked playing a villain in this movie... You can go to patreon.com slash junkfoodcinema, and for as little as a dollar an episode, you get access to bonus content that nobody else gets to hear. And that's how we keep the lights on here, because we don't have any uh, we don't have any land to sell to the railroad. So your patronage is entirely how this show stays afloat, and we greatly appreciate that. Now, as we mentioned, this is our Thanksgiving episode, and we are covering one of the greatest movies of all time. I'm just going to say one of the greatest movies of all time. Oh, yes. I absolutely think that it is. We're talking about Once Upon a Time in the West. The Widow. The Land Grabber. The Outlaw. The Gunman. In a new land. In a new kind of Western. Madman lost his damn mind in the West. Loveless, giving up a dime, nothing less. Now I must put his behind to the test. I, but that's a different movie that we will probably cover at some point on the show. That's a little film called Wiggity Wiggity Wild Wild West uh, by uh, Mr. William Smith. So if we will wait, we'll get wait. to that one. Do you think we're going to get to Wild Wild West? We'll get to it. I don't know if we'll have a whole episode on it, but it will be gotten to, I feel, at some point. It, then... Maybe. <laughs> I mean, let's let's just put this out now. Uh, Wild Wild West is one of the only films in the history of my experience as a film watcher in which me and my wife walked out of the theater and we stopped halfway to the parking lot and said no. No, we're not leaving like this. That movie will we're, not defeat us. We are no, no, no. It's not that it wouldn't defeat us. It was like we're not going home feeling like this. We're going to see another movie right oh. now. We needed, <laughs> we desperately needed to see something else because we were so mad uh, at what we had just watched, and uh, um, and so we turned around. And fortunately, when Wild Wild West is in theaters, so was a little thing called South Park the movie. Bigger, and, longer, and uncut. And we went and saw uh, South Park the movie, and that saved the day. You know that that move you just pulled right there? That's what Brian Boitano would have done. He'd make a plan and he follow through. That's what Brian Boitano do. Now, Cargill, some people would argue that Once Upon a Time in the West is better than Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West. I might be one of those people. I'm firmly in that corner as well. And some people might argue Once Upon a Time in the West seems like a really legitimately good movie. If I may, what the fuck are you doing covering it on Junk Food Cinema? 
First of all, I don't appreciate your language, but I will address this. Um, I appreciate your language. I'm going to do what I always do whenever we find ourselves back to, to a corner where we we need to violate temporarily the core values of this show. I don't I don't think we are this time, though. Well, I I'm going to blame the patrons because this actually was, uh, we have a tier, a $25 level tier, where if you uh, pledge that for a month, you actually get to tell us what movie to cover. And our patron Ian uh, pledged at that level and wanted us to cover Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, I didn't said, know this was. I didn't yes, know this was a request. It was uh, because the minute you mentioned Once Upon a Time in the West, I was just like, yes, a thousand times, yes. Uh, <laughs> and I would argue that it doesn't violate any core values because one of the problems with Once Upon a Time in the West is it is. I'm going to just say it. It is. It is. It is his masterpiece. Yes, this is without a doubt. Uh, Sergio Leone's masterpiece. It is better than The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Everybody knows The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Virtually everyone's seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But I know hardcore, uh, deep cinephiles who still have not seen Once Upon a Time in the West. It is a movie that the the studio so undervalues that they uh, you can buy it on HD for like seven bucks. Yeah. Like it's a movie that they're just like, eh, nobody really wants this. Like you can't find Mean Girls for less than $13. But, <laughs> and by the way, I love Mean Girls, so no slam to that. But we're talking about, we're literally talking about one of the best movies ever fucking made with a cast that you cannot believe is in a fucking movie together uh, with one of the greatest scores of all time. More, in my opinion, more. Morricone's greatest score, um, a movie that has been ripped off by masters and turned into masterpieces. And it's a movie that not everybody has seen. And some of you out there are like, shit, I've never seen it. And boy, howdy, are you in for a treat? Normally, I would say, shut this episode off. We're going to spoil everything. Watch it and then come back. You can't spoil Once Upon a Time in the West. It is a film that is so simple and pure in its elements. We will keep secret probably one big twist of the movie just to preserve you. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, even that can't ruin this movie because this movie is all about execution. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. <laughs> there is plenty of executing going on, especially since one of the stars of the movie is Charlie Bronson. So Chuck you know motherfuckers Bronson. are getting executed in this movie. Chuck Bronson without a name. His character's name is Harmonica. And why is he named Harmonica, Brian? Well, it's because I was going to be called Kazoo, and then every time I played it, it sounded like my voice just coming through a piece of plastic. It was like, so, yeah, no, he's called Harmonica because he literally barely speaks, but he enters every room. If he were a WWE wrestler, the entrance music would be the Harmonica. Well, here's, it's funny you bring that up because I think that is one of the centerpieces of this film. One of the things this film does better than almost any other film in history. Like I'm going to stack it up against every other film in history. Name a film that introduces all of its characters better than this movie. Oh, there isn't one. I mean, the first 10 minutes of this film, by the way, it was released in 1968. Uh, It was released in a period of time when Sergio Leone wasn't sure he wanted to make westerns anymore. It was he had done it. He felt like he had said all he wanted to say, and he was excited to move on to this new project, uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, and as we all know, that wouldn't end up getting made until the mid eighties, eight nineteen eighty four, in fact. Um, but he this this project came along because uh, it was a story by himself and someone named uh, Dario 
fucking Argento. That's right. Yeah. No, I, fe- I felt like I'd heard that name before. But I mean, that in and of itself, incredible. Like the two of them working together on the story, I am absolutely on board. Uh, and then there's the, the, the premise of this movie is that you have a, a family who was murdered by a greedy railroad tycoon because the land that they that they had purchased was so valuable. They didn't anticipate, though, that this this family man had just married a woman and just sent for her. And she shows up and, oh, shit, now there's another heir. And all the while, there is this little, like, this, this uh, mustache-free, by the way, a Wraith of Revenge, played by Charles Bronson, just going around fucking people up left and right. Not just, he's not, but he's not fucking people up left and right. He's fucking with people, which is what's kind of amazing. So here's here is what is so fascinating about this movie. It is a masterclass intention, mm-hmm. and w- every scene is longer than your average scene, and every scene. Sets up somebody coming in, you wondering what the fuck is going on, and then the tension growing as you wonder, is somebody in this scene going to murder the other person in this scene? Every scene is like this until the end of the movie. Uh, it is it is an, it. And what's fascinating about it, what's brilliant about it is it is an inversion of everything that Hitchcock talks about. Hitchcock has his, uh, there's is what's called Hitchcock bomb theory. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock bomb theory is if you have two people sitting at a table and talking for 15 minutes, um, or I think it's 10 minutes is what he said in the quote, uh, you've just got, and then a bomb goes off. You've got shock and surprise. But if you show somebody putting a bomb under the table and two people sitting down, you have 10 minutes of tension. Mm-hmm. Well, this is so Hitchcock argued that you always show the bomb and you always show what the tension is and then you let the tension go. Well, this movie is never showing you the bomb. He never shows you the gun first. He just increases the tension and just the pure menace of these characters performances of these actors performances is the bomb. And so the movie opens with Woody fucking Strode and Jack fucking Elam, of all people. Jack Elam, who many of you will probably remember from the Cannonball Run movies as the crazy doctor, but who was famous for playing kooky Western villains and and the like. Um, Woody Strode and, and Jack Elam show up with a third guy, and they're just harassing someone at a station. And it's 10 minutes of these guys being alpha as fuck and being weird as fuck waiting for a train. Now, we did mention Ennio Morricone's score, and in this scene, it is noticeably, deliberately, and beautifully absent. Yeah. All you're hearing is a rusty windmill moving around. Uh, you are hearing- You're hearing the drips of this water coming yeah. out of the water tank. And in fact, one of the things I love most about this opening scene, which, by the way, is the reason I fell in love with this movie. The first time I saw it was at a draft house. It was during a Once Upon a Time in the West feast that they were doing. And this opening scene hooked me so hard that I watched the movie probably three more times that week. Because not only the tension, but the way it is shot. You may remember that there are Leone movies that start with a sort of animated uh, sequence with, of course, the Morricone music. And there's just something about the way that he animates Western figures that feels exactly like the framing 
of the beginning of this movie. Like the way that they're in shadow and they're standing kind of off center in doorways or, you know, one guy is over here half in shadow. Like they look like the cutouts. They look like the, the paper cutouts that you see in the animated um, sequences in some of his other movies. And then we are just sitting there with them. We have no idea what is going on, but they have done enough to establish that these guys are trouble and we are just literally waiting for trouble to arrive on the train. I mean, it's it's very uh, it's very high noon. We are waiting for that train to come in, and it feels like this feels like its own separate movie at the beginning of the movie. This yeah. has a beginning, middle, and an end in way in a way that a lot of opening sequences in films I think should sit down and genuflect and, and study. And then the train arrives, and nothing happens. Yeah. And then the train leaves. And as the train leaves, there's a figure standing on the other side. And these three guys come up and said, uh, you know, it, and and essentially the thing is, where's Frank? Frank said us. So he's not coming? No. Did you bring a horse for me? And they look back and these three guys count three horses. They go, nope, we're one short. And then Charles Bronson says, you brought two too many. <laughs> God, oh, there's so many moments like that in this movie. Oh, this movie, the, what little, what sparse dialogue is in this movie is fucking great. Yeah. It's just fucking great. There's, we will talk about a number of just amazing one-liners in this movie um, that, that just fucking kill. And that's the first of them. And you're just like, holy shit. By the way, they don't see Charles Bronson they hear that harmonica and they yes. all turn. It's like, well, that's the oh, thing. It's so great. So, so yeah, one of the things, you know, taking a, a sidebar. One of the things about this, this movie is that Morricone, the score is brilliant, but what's brilliant about the score is it's Peter and the wolf. It is not a traditional movie score. There are, I don't believe any bits of incidental music in this movie. Everything is a character. Theme. It's attached to a character. And yeah, every yeah. character has their own theme. And that theme is different and awesome in its own way. And so we've got the harmonica theme uh, that comes with this killer fucking guitar. Cause this is in the era where Morricone started experimenting with electric guitars Yeah, and the brow, that dirty, nasty, gritty fucking, uh, uh, chord played with the harmonica and you know, the, you know, the, the tapping drums of the snare. Uh, I mean, it's just so fucking, it just gets you moving. Fucking it's, a, there's a reason why Tarantino ripped off half of this score for kill bill <laughs> because that, and by the way, kill bills, not the movie he ripped off. Uh, he, he was emulating trying to make this movie. Um, uh, so, uh, and we'll get into that, but, uh, so he, he ripped, <laughs> he took that score, but so then you've got, uh, um, you've got Jason Robards fucking theme, yeah. which is this bouncing, moving kind of happy go lucky, uh, theme song for a cold blooded fucking killer. Yeah. It's really strange. What I, what's interesting though, is apparently when Morricone composed the, the score, he did it to the screenplay, the original screenplay that then got changed around. And as a result, um, when they changed the plot in many places, Leone actually directed the film to the existing music score. So you can't, one does not exist without the other yeah. in this case, especially. And I think that's one of the, one of the feathers in the cap for your argument that this may be Morricone's best score is it's so good 
that Leone actually directed his movie to match the score, not yeah. the other way around. Yeah, and the operatic, uh, the operatic nature of uh, the widow. Yes, her uh, her theme, like all of these, all of these pieces work together. To Played let by it, the endlessly fetching Claudia Cardinale. Oh my! Oh yes. my! So, um, so every time harmonica shows up, we hear. And then you're like, oh, shit's about to go down. And that's one of the great things about this movie is everything is shit's about to go down. And it's whether it goes down or not. Every single scene in this movie simmers. Even the exposition scenes are simmering tension. Yeah. And that's and that's what's fascinating. To I keep going back to Tarantino, so I'll talk about it. How Tarantino ripped this off uh, was with uh, Inglorious Bastards. And in Inglorious Bastards, he wanted to make his Once Upon a Time in the West and make it Once Upon a Time in World War II. And so that's why every scene in uh, in Inglorious Bastards is somebody has a secret and somebody is trying to find out the secret. And every single scene is that until the climax when everything goes down and goes to shit. Uh, and it is a revenge film in which there are people trying to uncover secrets and people with even darker secrets than you think. And it opens with the most Leone-esque scene that Tarantino has ever done, even though he was making a Leone Western with Kill Bill, in which this German man is housing Jews underneath his floorboards yeah. and the famous Jew hunter shows up to try to root it out. And it is, if if that scene is once upon a time in the West for two hours and 46 minutes. Like yeah. that is, it is, that is what this is, is it is every scene is, oh shit, Jason Robards is a cold-blooded killer and Harmonica, we know, is a cold-blooded killer and they're in a bar together and they both have an ax to grind. The fuck is going to happen? Yeah, and and... I will say, I will refute an argument made by Roger Ebert when he reviewed this movie in that the the one thing he seemed to really have a problem with was the runtime and the pacing. And while I I understand that the, the original cut of this movie is about 20 minutes longer, and it's already about two hours and 25 minutes, uh, and the, the longer cut, incidentally, only exists in Italian. There is no English dub uh, or subtitles. It only exists in Italian. Um, wait, you said two hours and 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. I watched a two hour and 46 minute. Version. Then you watched the, wait, really? Yeah. Okay. The, well, the, the version I bought off, uh, Amazon is two hours and 46 minutes. Were there chunks of it where people were only speaking Italian? Nope. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I will say Wikipedia that, has lied to us. It's, no, it's entirely, it, you know what? It's a, a, it, there is a thing at the beginning thanking, uh, a film festival for, uh, uh, and uh, Paramount for the restoration. Yeah. So it may, what I might have watched is a longer restoration, but it's entirely possible. It was two hours and 46 minutes. I was like, oh shit. I thought this was two and a half hours. Yeah. And it turns out I may have watched, but there were, it was, it, that cut is long. But and, I, and I will say, I will say that this is not a movie that if you are not a fan of Westerns or if you are, 
uh, tepid about entering that genre. I may not recommend this as the first one that you you venture into because where I kind of split from Ebert is I actually think what's amazing about this movie is that it has secrets. The movie has secrets that it is doing everything it can to withhold from the audience, which sounds like a knock against it. But if you trust that by the end, all will be revealed and revealed in the most dramatic fashion and give over to it. Cause there are many pl- points in this plot where you're like, I don't know the relationship between these two people. There is a lot of tension here. I don't know why. I don't know why specifically this person was murdered or this is happening. And the movie isn't isn't quick, isn't eager to share that with you. By the time the ending has the ending credits have rolled, all the curtains have been pulled back. But this is not a movie that is going to piecemeal out all of the secrets and hold your hand. It definitely just wants you to take the time to learn who these characters are, what makes them tick, what makes them dangerous. And then at the end, we'll tell you how, you know, narratively they fit into each other's lives. But it's it's not a movie that's eager to share that information. No, it's weird that the pacing is what got him on this movie, considering this movie was made in 1968, mm-hmm. when a 2001 A Space Odyssey, a movie you famously hate for its pacing, yeah. uh, and Planet of the Apes came out. That is an experimental year of amazing cinema that is all about, no, sit, wait a while, you'll be rewarded. And this is a movie that really does reward you. Um, this is, I mean, this is what so fascinates me about this movie is it's uh, the other movie that I talked about made by a master that was knocking this off. We're talking about next week. And that is a little movie called Mad Max to the road warrior. Um, and road warrior is Miller's once upon a time in the West where his main character says 16 lines of dialogue, uh, in the entire movie, there's whole patches of dialogue free action, but George Miller is positively an ADT suffering autistic kid compared to uh, Leone's yeah, he has furniture the- store salesman. <laughs> like it is, this movie is slow, deliberate, careful. Like uh, what what Leone does in two hours and forty six minutes, uh, Miller then does in ninety five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a reason why you turn on Road Warrior and then it's over, and you're like, holy shit. This movie, despite its length, does not feel like a slog through a three-hour movie. I I would agree with that, and that's one of the things I think is really phenomenal about it. Uh, But it it is a movie that is going to take its time with developing its characters, first and foremost. So much so that it's... I feel like this was probably particularly challenging for every actor in it, in that you don't have a lot of dialogue to, to get to the root of your character. So much of it is in a look... So much of it is nonverbal. So much of it is literally the strains of a fucking harmonica. Like there, this presents a very unique challenge for actors. And as such, it's why I feel that Once Upon a Time in the West is at least Charles Bronson's best role of his entire career. Oh, hands down. Like th- this is Bronson's best movie. Uh, this is Robard's best movie. This is Leone's best movie. This is Morricone's best movie. Maybe. Maybe it's Henry Fonda's best movie. I think uh, it, I think it's it's his most daring movie because we've mentioned it a couple times, but we have a real Terminator Two moment going on here in this movie. Yeah, uh, in that Henry Fonda, who up to this point in his career had really only ever played good guys, played fathers, played uh, you know just stand up guys. Like he was, 
he was like Danny Thomas. He was, like- <laughs> no, he was he was Jimmy Stewart. Yes, absolutely. That's who he was. Yeah. He was the other Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And um and so he was this lovable guy. He was this guy that, you know, he was and so it was it, but this was very common in the mid 60s. I mean, a film that we should have done this month uh because this is the how have we not done it yet month uh called The Killers in which Ronald Reagan, a guy who did comedies with a fucking chimpanzee uh, and then became president, uh, is a brutal, ruthless criminal who smacks around Angie Dickinson. Right. It was just a few years before this. This was one of those times where everybody started experimenting in Hollywood, uh, both literally and figuratively, because it is the 60s. And Henry Fonda decided to play this mean fucking codger of a villain. And he initially turned it down for that very reason. He didn't really see himself as suited to play a villain. Leone flew to America and met with him and painted him a picture, which was basically, you know, the camera shows a gunman from the waist down pulling his gun and shooting a running child. The camera pans up to the gunman's face and it's Henry Fonda, which to me, and it's framed exactly like that in the movie. Yeah. Uh, where they emerge from the... God, such an amazing scene where this entire family is cut down by in basically invisible guns because you never see who the fuck is shooting. And then the music swells up, that incredible Morricone swells up, and you just slowly see these guys start to emerge from the brush. And they they shoot... Once they actually enter the property and there's one more person left alive, this kid, they pan up, and sure enough, they pan up slowly to Henry Fonda's face. And I can imagine... That's why I call it a Terminator 2 moment... Because I imagine being in that theater and having no idea what was going on with this movie. And you're just revealed that Henry fucking Fonda is about to kill a child. Has already killed another child. Like, that must have blown people's minds at the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's one of those turns where you probably, at some point, there were people giggling at first. Like, Henry Fonda. <laughs> and then about five minutes into Fonda's performance, like... Holy fuck, this dude's scary. Yeah. He's fucking scary in this movie. He's so alpha and fucking scary. His boss is fucking afraid of him. And his boss knows that at any moment, his his this guy that he is, you know, brought up and reared and and has been his strong arm is gonna murder him and take his place. Mm-hmm. But he's not qualified to. And that's what's so interesting, is that. This Fonda's character has this real depth to him that he's not just a cold-blooded murderer. He's a cold-blooded murderer that has found a taste for business and loves that you can be just as ruthless, but you don't need to hold a gun. You just need to sit behind a desk. And I just need this guy to die so I can take his desk. And it makes a very interesting dynamic while they're trying to solve this railroad problem. Um, It is just... Amazing how this happens. Every character, except for one, wants something deeply and passionately. You know, you've got Henry Fonda. He wants to take the place behind the desk. You've got his boss who wants to finish the railroad and he's dying of tuberculosis. And before he gets to the uh, before he dies, he wants to see the ocean. He wants to have been the guy who crossed the nation. He is manifest destiny. He is manifest. Basically a a human representative of the idea of manifest destiny. Harmonica wants revenge for something and we don't fucking know what, and we don't know exactly what he wants. Um, You know, uh, the widow wants, uh, uh, 
wants to live in peace, wants to get away from her life as a prostitute. Um, and then you have Comanche. Is, yeah. it, is that the name, Comanche? Is or What's uh, Robard's... Uh, oh, Robard's character is uh, 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 Cheyenne. Cheyenne, yes. not Comanche, Cheyenne. Cheyenne is a traditional Leone character, and this is something else I wanted to talk about. Leone has a habit of inserting tricksters into his movies. And I love that he does it. He did it. He does it. He did it in a way that most other filmmakers don't. And the trickster narrative is always really an interesting one. And it's really interesting for epics, but Leone loved inserting the trickster into his to fight that dastardly flash. You, you know, yes, you, you make the joke, but uh, I did. In fact, yes. But no, the trickster character is a really hard thing to get right. But Leone always did it well. And what he would always do is he would use the trickster to play off of the grim, silent hero. So, you know, that's what we have, you know, in Good, Bad, and the Ugly, you know, um, uh, with with that really great character playing off of Angel Eyes. You know, then you've got, you know, uh, Jason Robards here. What does Jason Robards want? Not a whole hell of a lot. Not like much. he's pissed off at the beginning that somebody's impersonating his men uh, to try to pin him for a murder, but he's killed enough people that he really doesn't care that people's pinning up murders on him. He's already going to go to jail at some point and get hung right. for all the murders he's committed. That doesn't really bother him all that much, but he really, it really chaps his hide that this guy harmonica is running around and he cannot figure him out. And it's really fucking. And one of the things we learn about him as we go along is he really is insightful about people. Like he gets everybody. Every time Cheyenne is in a room with somebody, he tells that person exactly who they are. He tells the audience who they are before we find out that's who they are. But he can't do it with harmonica and it pisses him off. And that's why to the end of the movie, his big reward is kind of figuring out what harmonica's deal is. And, uh, but so he, he, and how more, how Leone deals with him is for the first half of the movie, you think Cheyenne's the villain, right? You think it's, there's two villains in this movie and he's the sub villain. Like in a Marvel movie, every Marvel movie kind of has two villains. You've got your, your big a villain who's really running the show. And then you've got your B villain. Well, he's the B villain, right? No, he's the trickster. Like halfway through the movie, he becomes the ally to our heroes who at the beginning of the movie we thought is going to murder both of our heroes and just becomes this wild card and is fascinating. And Robards is eating this the fuck up. He does a trick involving a cowboy boot that I have not seen in any other <laughs> Western. <laughs> yes. That I could not stop laughing at. Like, it's, it, it works. It's very effective. But again, the trickster character, that is one of the best tricks I see him pull in this entire movie. Yeah, he is. Yeah, no, that's the thing. That whole that that is a perfect embodiment of the trickster. And that's where us seeing the trickster in action. Why is he such a good killer? Because he fucks with people's heads. Mm -hmm. He's on top of a moving train and he's moving around the train and using the train to fool the gunman inside so that he can murder the gunman one by one, even though they're all standing in the same car. And he's really good at what he does. And watching the interplay between a handcuffed or chained uh, harmonica watching Cheyenne work 
is really fascinating. There's a great moment where Cheyenne's in the car firing at people. Bullets are whizzing past Charles Bronson, and he's just standing there smiling. Yeah. He's like, he's <laughs> not cowering, not even taking cover, just like, <laughs> bullets. He know yeah, it's family of cops. Family of <laughs> Family of Tricksters. Yeah. Starring Charlie Brunson. It's uh you, you guys didn't think we were gonna get through an episode with Bronson without how mentioning the, family of cops. How the first of all, that's on you if you thought that. Like I, I I don't know what to tell you. And if you thought the impression wasn't gonna happen in an actual Charlie Bronson movie when it happened in the last three movies we talked about that didn't, didn't have, have Charlie, Charlie Bronson, Bronson in them. Yeah. Again, I feel like a little bit of the onus is on you. Yeah, so he Robards is just he's having a blast doing playing this role. Yeah. So good. Um and then his final scene is a masterwork. Oh yes. Like if you've ever loved Jason Robards as an actor and you've not seen his last five minutes in the good, the bad, and the ugly, or in in, in Once Upon a Time in the West. Whoa, whoa. Holy shit burgers. Everything he does with the widow that then leads to riding out of town with harmonica is crazy. By the way, also, Jason Robards gets almost all of the great one-liners. My favorite one-liner in the movie is not the you brought two horses too many. It's where um, uh, harmonica has turned uh, Cheyenne in for the $5,000 ransom that's on his head uh, so that he can afford to buy the land. And he goes, well, that's uh, $4,970 more than Judas got. And, it, and Charles Bronson goes, there were no dollars in them days. They were sons of bitches, though. That's such <laughs> it's a like, great. oh, yeah. God, that's so good. Um, <laughs> Which, by the way, is like a perfect, the 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 line, that's 9000 you know, whatever, more than Judas asked for. And then Charles Bronson saying, they didn't have dollars in those days. That's my marriage um, where I'll make like some reference or some joke like that. And my super literal wife will be like, wait, that doesn't make sense because this, that or the other thing. And I'm just like, all right, <laughs> I just I'll just get sons one. of bitches, though. Yeah, I guess I'm the son of bitch. In this and then movie. and then probably the it's not it, not so much a one liner, but it is of all the tension moments in this movie. When the widow says, what is he doing? He's down there whittling. And when he stops whittling. I think something's going to happen. Yeah. And it's just like, shit. And sure enough, Henry Fonda comes riding up at the end of that movie and he stops whittling. And holy God, do we get one of the great high noon shootouts of all time. Now, I think that's really interesting. That scene, that exchange of dialogue is exactly what I'm talking about with this movie being withholding. In that there are moments throughout the movie where Henry Fonda asks Charles Bronson outright, who are you? How do I know you? What's our relationship? And he keeps telling him the names of dead men. He won't He won't tell him. That's this whole movie. This whole movie is like, we'll get there. You know what? We'll get there. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. And when it is time, like a lot of the things we've mentioned as far as um, the, the land of the family that's murdered being an important railroad stop, uh, the fact that... The, the widow used to be a prostitute. Those things are revealed after the hour and a half mark, like at, at, at the earliest. So the, again, this is a movie that's just like, we'll get there. Don't worry about it. Stick with us. Watch these characters unfold. Learn who these people are. And then we'll tell you about their circumstances. And in that final scene, we finally, as they're stepping out into their high noon, 
we see who Harmonica is in one scene. Not even Charles Bronson playing him. In fact, it's only in that moment that you realize, oh, uh, it's the 60s, so Charles Bronson, a Polish man, is playing a Mexican. Okay, uh, so... This is also uh, Chato's land, if anyone's <laughs> interested in why I'm protecting the railroad interest. Anybody, it's because it's Chato's land. Anybody want tacos? <laughs> I uh, prefer a nice burrito myself, but uh, sure, we can hook you up with some tacos. Yeah, he's about as it's taco night for the whole family of cops. I am so yeah. No, and when when you see that, there's this disjointed moment of like, wait, who is the? Oh, oh, I see. Okay, all of this comes together. I know who this is supposed to be. Oh, it was racism the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) forgivable. I'm blame the Italians, (laughs) which which we do on this show a lot, all the time. I feel like there's a nice couplet uh, of ideas here in this episode and next week's episode, and that. Sergio Leone and George Miller are also the two most ripped off people when it comes to the Italian knockoff genre. It's weird that we're talking about an Italian film that isn't knocking off something else that everyone else has knocked off instead. Like this is literally like, I mean, it does borrow liberally from all the great uh, Westerns, but it does so in the same way that Unforgiven does and that it's like, no, this is one of the greatest Westerns ever made. We've just distilled all of the great Western stories into one story. Yeah. In fact, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, who worked on the screenplay, was a really big fan of The Last Sunset, a 1961 uh, Western with uh, with Kirk Douglas and Rock Hudson. And in fact, that duel between Frank and Harmonica is shot almost shot for shot. Yeah. That final duel. And except that what happens is right before they're about to shoot, he's like, tell me who you are. And he's like, only in the last moments of your death. Yeah. And then sure enough, in the last moments of his death, wordlessly tells him who he is, and you see it in Henry Fonda's eyes. Henry Fonda's eyes, he sees who Harmonica really is, and then he dies. And he dies in terror, knowing what has come back for him. So I'm going to ask you a question, Cargill. Gee, you think Sam Raimi's a fan of this film? Uh, Well, the fact that one of the other movies we're not talking about this month was one of the movies we talked about doing, which is Quick and the Dead. Yeah. Uh, I know Sam Raimi's a fan (laughs) of this fucking movie. The Quick and the Dead, though, isn't like as much as it's inspired by Leone. It's not a knockoff of it's not an attempt to remake it in the of way course, that no, Road no. Warrior or uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards is like those are both direct movies where you see you can pair this movie with either of those movies and go holy shit these movies are thematically linked in their own ways yeah. uh, Miller took the silence and cinematography and action and put all that and shorthanded it in a way where you have a movie with very little dialogue that tells a great post-apocalypse Western story. And then, you know, Tarantino said, I'm going to, t- to throw out all the Western stuff and take the structure and take what he's doing here with all these scenes. And I'm going to duplicate that and set it in World War Two. So uh, it is um, uh, it is it is good. And the bad or the uh, uh, quick and the dead is a movie that is much more fun and playing around with the more fun Leone uh, and also living in. Leone's spaghetti verse, if you will. Yes, it does. And we should talk about that because this is not a spaghetti Western. It is not. It does. What I I will say one more thing about Quick and the Dead. What Quick and the Dead borrows from this movie is not only a character's entire backstory, which it does. um, Yes, it does. But it also makes the bold decision to make a Western that centers on a female character. 
uh, which is which actually is something that initially Leone was hesitant about. But when you look at this film and you look at the various through lines of the movie, Claudia Cardinale is, is the most important because she is. I've I've said this a lot about Leone, but one of the things I love most about watching a Leone Western versus anyone else's is that there's a lost in translation quality to it. And I'm not just talking about the dubbing. Right. I'm talking about the fact that you have an Italian filmmaker who is obsessed with American myth, obsessed with American lifestyle and culture and history, but who clearly was raised in another country. So you have this reinterpretation through a filter of a European filmmaker who is trying to tell American myths. And that is that's entirely what this movie is, too. It's trying to tell the story of a country that is finding, still exploring, still finding its entire, exploring the breadth of itself. And that's the whole Manifest Destiny storyline. That's the reason the last shot of this movie is just a train kind of coldly rolling through, you know, the carnage of the debris of everyone else's life. He is very much like with Once Upon a Time in America. He is trying to nail down the most significant moments in American history and give it and, and explore American myth. But obviously from the point of view of someone who wasn't raised here. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's easy to understand. I mean, here's somebody who's raised on a continent that has been conquered and reconquered for several millennia. And he's telling stories that are within the last hundred years of his life that, um, uh, that happen in a place that is, was still untamed. Uh, and when he was making this movie, we still had parts of this country that were not, you know, keep in mind that when he's making movies in the 60s, we still had new states. Like yeah. we we had just gotten up to 50. Um, <laughs> like we're a young fucking country. We are we are positively a toddler compared to, you know, his home which, uh, of Italy, which was at one point in time, the center of civilization. Right. Um, so. He's surrounded by he's surrounded in his own home by buildings older than our country. And so he was fascinated by that exploration in the same way that what would happen. I mean, and this is this was an important part of why things change. There's there's comments about it, about how it happened in the 50s uh, into the 60s. But how he went from kids went from wanting to be cowboys to being astronauts. It was the same fucking thing. Yeah. It was taming a wild frontier. It was going off into nothing and creating something and 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 fostering life where life did not exist. Manifest Destiny. Manifest Destiny. This episode brought to you by Manifest, Manifest Destiny. Destiny. Uh. <laughs> American imperialism done well. <laughs> That's good imperialism. <laughs> All right. I, I need another beer after that one. That's good manifest destiny. <laughs> you look at all the other westerns. When you talk about the best westerns of all time, the American, the John Ford western. Yeah. A John Ford western could not be any more different than a Sergio Leone western. Well, no, they couldn't because the thing is, is that um, uh, the great westerns, the truly great westerns are Greek tragedies. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's a lot of fun westerns. There's one western I've been mentioning for years that we will eventually cover that I don't think you've seen yet. Silverado. Um, no, I have not seen it. And which is just, you're going to sit down and go, holy shit, this, I can't believe I've never watched this Western with this cast. This is fun. This is, this is once upon a time in the West done in the eighties for fun. Okay, cool. I'm in. Um, then you have a movie like this where 
almost everybody dies in this movie. And the ones that don't leave fucking broken. Right. Uh, and, res- you know, improved in resolve, having triumphed over adversity. But they lost a lot to get there. It is fucking Shakespearean. It is Greek tragedy. And that's what Unforgiven is. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the best part of Unforgiven is watching, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood get drunk as shit and murder everybody that killed his friend. Like that's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's the, the happiest. Uh, moment. That's the upper of that fucking movie. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you look at one of the greatest Westerns of all time, the searchers, mm-hmm. the searchers is not a happy fucking no, film. No, dear God. No, but all the great, the great Westerns are tragedies. And that's what I love about this. And that's what I love about those. And that's why I think this is a masterpiece. You know, the other, um, uh, you know, Leone spaghetti westerns, they're fun. They're great. They're bloody. They're violent. You're like cheering on along the whole thing. You aren't caught up in the real tragedy of it. They're all great movies. I love them, but none of them touch this in terms of just how pure and heartbreaking the entire thing is. By the time you, you walk away from this movie, it's like, shit, I understand what everybody wanted and almost none of them got it. Mm-hmm. And that's heartbreaking. And yet at the same time, you also feel triumphant because well, fucking evil, evil took it hard and evil. Like <clears throat> there are three unbelievably great death scenes in this movie. You've got you, you've got our our big bad crawling towards the water. Yes. Hearing this, the sound of the ocean, even though he's crawling towards a puddle because he has failed. You have. Um, you you have uh Henry Ford getting the harmonica Fonda. put in his house. I kept doing Henry, that. I, no, I kept Fonda. doing that while I was watching it. That's yeah, why I was waiting Fonda, for it. Yeah, Henry Fonda getting the harmonica in his mouth. He's killing people on an assembly line. It is crazy. Yep, revolutionized American <laughs> industry. But it was very bloody. dude. He kills he kills three people. Bam, bam, bam! Right in the first scene. Um, he calls his gun the Model T. It's weird. It's very, very weird. It's a strange thing. And then of course you have Jason Robards' death scene. You know, a Cheyenne's death scene, which is you know. Don't don't look at me. I don't Stop. want you to I don't want you to see me die. Like yeah. fuck me, man. Yeah. And and just the sound of Jason Robards keeling over and just seeing him lying there all pathetic, you know, this this dangerous terrible man who turned out to just want to marry uh, a prostitute and see a good life, you know, and it just didn't the work American out that dream. way. The American dream. Come I mean, on, guys. God. What a great piece of character work. One line of dialogue. It kills me how great this is. It's really, it seems very offensive at first. Like it seems very unwoke the fir- at, at first until the revelation comes. Uh, but he goes, you remind me of my mother. She was the biggest whore in, and I forget which Alameda. T- in Alameda. Uh, but she also was the best woman there ever was. And every man that spent an hour with her. Uh, he said the line is uh, my father, whoever he was for an hour or for a month was uh, was so happy. Like was a happy man was a happy man. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. And so you think he's being really insulting to her, but it's like, oh, no, this guy knows a hooker when he sees one and he's totally got her number. And then we subsequently find out he's got everyone's number. And that's the beauty of the underlying element. He never says out loud why harmonica pisses him off, but that's why he can't figure him out. He's got everybody else's fucking number, but he can't, 
figure this guy out. He knows he wants something. He doesn't know why. And this guy's a cool fucking cat. And that's also what's there is this great shootout scene in this movie in which, you know, the whole movie that harmonica wants to kill Henry Fonda, but he wants to be the one to kill him. So he helps him kill his own men who have been paid to turn coat on him. Now, interesting about this scene, there is, and again, really appropriate that we're following this up next week with Road Warrior because there's a scene in the shootout where I'm pretty sure a stunt didn't go the way it was supposed to, but they left it in. There is a- a When the guy falls through the roof? Falls through the roof directly on his head. Yeah. Like, doesn't land on his back, clearly not on a pad. This guy lands on his fucking head. How he walked away from this- is beyond me. And also something I didn't know, apparently John Landis worked as a stuntman on this movie. That would not surprise. So many brilliant That's fucking people nuts. worked on this fucking movie. It's crazy. Uh, just uh, uh, how many, like how many cameos there are in this movie. Yeah. How many people behind the scenes worked on this movie. Keenan Wynn shows up as the sheriff for about a scene and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, you mentioned Clint Eastwood, who was the person originally offered the role of harmonica. But felt like he had he didn't want to get typecast into always doing movies with Leone. So actually, the next person that they offered it to was James Coburn. But then he would go on to be in the next of what is referred to as Leone's Once Upon a Time trilogy, which starts with this and goes to Duck You Sucker, also known as Fistful of Dynamite, starring James Coburn, and then concludes with Once Upon a Time in America. Now, I never knew this. I never knew that even thematically... I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America, obviously. But that Duck You Sucker is also considered part of that family was very surprising to me. I didn't know that they were considered to be of a set. I didn't either because Duck You Sucker's entertaining. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't even mention it next to Once Upon a Time in the West uh, accidentally. Uh, so to find out that they are... They are of the same family uh, does catch me off guard a bit. Well, apparently the idea was that these are three movies about the most important periods in American history. And so I guess in that realm, they're considered to be, you know, uh, of, a, of a set. But yeah, it's they're very like once upon a time in the West, once upon a time, once upon a time in America, sweeping epics. They they have a lot in common in their DNA. Fistful of Dynamite, Duck You Sucker, is is nothing like the first and third. Yeah. I feel, you know, I feel like we're owed a month of Westerns. We oh, yeah. We have not done enough Westerns. Uh, and I'm thinking right now of four Westerns that if I named all four of them, you would say yes to all of them. Because the one we haven't mentioned that is one of our favorites is The Professionals. Yes. And we have to cover that at some point, too. So I feel like we need to do a month of just... Catching up on a bunch of these Westerns. What would be great is if for every episode we get spaghetti from a different local Austin Italian restaurant and trying to figure out who has the best spaghetti in town as we do a month of spaghetti Westerns. Well, would we have it delivered or would we like send Jess out to get it from? (laughs) We haven't worked out the logistics. There's spaghetti involved as as far as I got. Spaghetti, spaghetti like substance. I'm certain. (laughs) Spaghetti like substance. Yeah, no, I, and I would I would try to go experimental there and throw in a movie like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which is one of my favorite Westerns that some people might argue is not a Western. But to me, it is absolutely a fucking Western. Um, but that's neither here nor there. In that shootout, uh, the stuntman falls directly on his head. It's very unnerving. And there is that moment where you're like, why in the hell 
is Bronson protecting this guy? And even Claudia Cardinal calls him out for it. You saved him. And he said, I didn't kill him. There's a difference. And it's just like. I didn't. I didn't let them kill him. There's a difference. It's just like, holy shit. And you see it in her eyes. And that's the first moment. She's like, oh, you're here to kill this guy. And what I love about it, what I really love about it is he's getting a slow revenge. He's not here to kill him. He's here to make him suffer. Yeah. And then kill him. And there's got to be a reason for that. And guess what? There's a great fucking reason for that. And that's the one secret we'll keep for those of you who haven't seen this, because really you're going to watch through this movie. And even though you're like, oh, hey, they told me who dies and when the why and the how is so good and so rewarding. Uh, this is a movie I rewatch about every five years. It's a movie yeah. that I, it's like, oh, shit, it's been a while since I watched this. I really need to sit down and treat myself to it again because it is a treat every time I watch it. And every time I watch it, I'm like, why do I not watch this movie more? Because it really is a masterpiece. It is a junk food fucking masterpiece. That's absolutely what it is. And, and I will say that there are of all of the movies that clearly borrow from this one cinematography one uh one actual shot that is ripped off wholesale is in back to the future three where you start at a train station like with people going through a door and then you pan up the top of the train station you go over the train station to see the scope of the town that is like that's the fucking shot to establish hill valley in 1885 and back to and i know that's a weird one to jump out at me but i was like Oh, that's the exact same fucking shot from Back to the Future 3. There it is right there. So I guess we can add Zemeckis to the litany of filmmakers who love this movie as much as we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to the junk food pairing, which, I mean, we we kind of already mentioned it. I mean, is it is it too crass to do a nice big plate of spaghetti? Maybe something... Uh, Something homemade. You can throw in uh, some nice pork sausage, some basil, some or get creative. I mean, a lot of people make their own sauce and throw in all kinds of shit. So I don't know. What's what's your do you do you do homemade spaghetti sauce? Oh, of course I do. Okay, so what's your what's your secret? What's your what's your Cargill touch for spaghetti sauce? Uh, me, uh, uh, first of all, you, you, you've got to chop the fresh garlic. Like the gar, if you're putting garlic powder in, go fuck yourself. You're you're, you're cheating yourself. Uh, you start off with a nice olive oil base, you know, uh, and start sautéing up your uh, uh, your garlic. But you don't sauté it too long because garlic brown uh, burns and browns too quickly. So then I drop in mushrooms and I sweat some mushrooms. And right when they're about to start sweating, I drop in some spinach. And, uh, so I dropped some spinach in there and I, I sauteed that up and generally I'll do this with a meat. So depending on what I'm doing, I'll either do a nice seasoned, uh, uh, ground Turkey, uh, if I want to go light or spicy sausage. I like a nice hot, spicy sausage, uh, when I'm doing a sausage dish. That's what I use in my lasagna is uh, I use a nice spicy sausage base. And then I spice it a little further with a little crushed red pepper, uh, a little Tony Shikere's, uh, some basil, some oregano, uh, and rosemary. And that is the base of, uh, and then I use a, a t- tomato puree. So I'll actually use like pure tomato as opposed to like a a canned sauce or something like that. See, the care and craft that you put into that spaghetti sauce, even though it is, you know, spaghetti, it's something that traditionally you think of as kind of a of a pig out food. 
you elevate it by taking your time with it, letting things literally sweat and simmer, much like Sergio Leone does in this movie. Oh, yes. So there you have it. Uh, nice plate of homemade spaghetti, I think, is maybe with a with a, a cup of black coffee and one of those metal blue oh, mugs. I always I always drink black coffee uh, with dinner. Actually, that is something. It's uh, in fact, there's certain if, when we go to gyms and I sit down. If if it's not a new waiter or waitress, they'll walk up with a black coffee and ask what everybody else wants. Um, <laughs> and you've seen it happen. You've yes, been witness I, to that. <laughs> like, what does everybody else want? Witness me! <laughs> <laughs> they bring it to you and everything is shiny and chrome. I absolutely... There. Man, wait, no, that's next week's movie. Next week's movie, by the way. Next week's Road movie. Warrior. I'm going to try and do this more often because I feel like this is something we should have been doing since... For five years? For five years. Uh, next week's movie is, in fact, The Road Warrior, so... Uh, track yourself down a copy if you don't already own it and, and watch it up before next week. And then we're going to round out We Should Have Covered This Sooner... Uh, with something tying this all together, a nice stuntman movie. Yes, this is true. Like, this is, was not intended to be a series, but much like the Once Upon a Time trilogy, I guess all these movies are kind of related. So there you have it. Cargill, where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MassaWyrm, M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M. Uh, and uh, you can find my new podcast, Right Along, with Dave Chen uh, over on RightAlongPodcast.com. Nice. And you can find this podcast again on iTunes, on Blog Talk Radio, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. You can like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash junkfoodcinema. And if you really like the show. I mean, you like the show as much as some people like wearing belts and suspenders. <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash junkfoodcinema for where for as little as a dollar an episode, you get access to bonus content. No one else gets to hear, but I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, reminding you that this is Junk Food Cinema, the defenders of the West, crushing all pretenders in the West. Don't mess with us, because we in the West. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.